Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily Daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone. Before we begin this week, I wanted to say a huge thank you. This podcast has been listened to nearly 300 times already. We've hit double figures on five-star ratings and even got a couple of reviews and one patron. I don't want to go into well-worn cliches that you can hear on almost any other podcast. That said, this is far more than I expected. People who have visibly yawned when I go off on one of my rare but fun rants about archaeology over the dinner table have told me how much they've enjoyed listening to this podcast. I'm very grateful, but I'm also inspired. This response has little many thoughts, ideas on how I can keep making this podcast better and how to present the past in an ever more interesting and accessible way. I've got some exciting things in the pipeline. But this podcast still has plenty of room to grow. The more reviews we receive, the more ratings we have, the bigger and better we get. Please leave a review and then rate us. The more you do that, the greater the chance the priesthood of Steve Jobs will deem us worthy of free publicity. If you'd like scripts, reading lists, or say in the show's future direction, then sign up to Patreon. Before we begin this week... I want to tell you a little bit about the direction of this podcast. I'm aiming to combine two schools of thought on how to present the past and educate people. The first is to tell the past as a story. The other is to focus on themes throughout history. For now, each season will focus on a particular period of human history. We'll then take a journey through that period. But on that journey, we're going to stop and specifically focus on a few themes. This season, for example, is taking a chronological journey through British prehistory. We started 500,000 years ago, and we're going to end on the very cusp of the Roman invasion. My overarching themes for this series are the development of society, the development of religion, and the foundations of what it means to be human. All of that is important to understand, because it puts today's episode in context. It's important you're aware of why I wrote this episode, because it's very dark. We're covering the most disturbing elements of the human experience. Today's entire episode is about cannibalism. There's going to be other dark and disturbing episodes in the future. For example, in the Iron Age episodes, we will have little choice but to confront topics such as human sacrifice. However, no episode will be as relentless as this one. The analogy I've used with a few friends who have helped me with this episode is that this is the equivalent of Bruce Wayne's parents being murdered at the beginning of a Batman film. It's a dark and shocking moment that sets up the rest of the story to be one of redemption, of ensuring humans never slip back into the state where something so awful could happen. This podcast isn't about shying away from things. 
It's about digging into what it means to be human. That means taking the shade with the light. I know that means some of you may find this episode difficult. I could talk a lot more about how grateful I am, how this podcast is going to work, and why this episode comes with a content warning. But I think for now, that's enough to be going on with. Let's get to the podcast. discuss the artistic heights of early Homo sapiens. Next week, we'll talk about a world beginning to get to grips with a climatic optimism. Before that, though, we have to dive into the darkest depths of humanity's soul. We're at Cheddar Gorge in Somerset, a place called Goff's Cave. It's a site we'll discuss next week, too. It's a keystone site in our understanding of British prehistory. 15,000 years ago, though, the people living in and around Goff's cave did something very disturbing indeed. They ate each other. They were cannibals. Let's talk about why. Glaciers have been the dominant backdrop in this podcast so far. They play a bigger role in this episode than any other theme. The late stages of the Ice Age became ever more frenetic. The glaciers advanced faster, but then crumbled back again even quicker. Britain was swinging millennium from millennium between grassy plains and icy permafrost. The island had climactic whiplash. It's the last of these gaps we're focusing on today the last failure of humanity to make Britain a permanent home. During this period, the climate warmed by 6 to 7 degrees in only a few years. We in modern times will face global disaster if we allow our world to be 2 degrees warmer than 200 years ago. Imagine the problems we would face if by 2022, Britain was as warm as North Africa. The ice caps would be gone. The seas, flooded with melted ice and expanding in the heat, would rise up and swallow London, Barcelona and New York. This isn't some impossible fantasy. People lived through climatic change on a scale unimaginable in modern times. Modern scientists are terrified of global sea levels rising by one or two metres. 15,000 years ago, every few hundred years, the seas would either rise or fall by up to 100 metres. It's little wonder then that during this time, many of the most charismatic animals died out. In Europe, woolly mammoths died out everywhere but Siberia. In America, we say goodbye to animals as marvellous as the great ground sloth. Any animal not adaptable enough died out during this helter-skelter ride of geographical changes. That's the view from 30,000 feet. It's an experience of the world at a geological pace, which, as you all know, is glacial. Even when things are this quick, humans aren't good at spotting geological changes in their own lifetimes. Without satellites or a nuanced understanding of volcanoes and sea currents, humans, rarely living much past 30, 
would have been ignorant flotsam on the choppy oceans of change. So let's take a snapshot of Somerset, 14,700 years ago. What did it look like when the ice wasn't there? This period was a time of glacial retreat. Britain may have been ice-free, but the oceans certainly weren't. Nor had the great megafauna yet been wiped out. Instead, at this time, a mammoth steppe spread from Klondike and Yukon in Canada, across the Bering Strait, which was dry land, through all of modern-day Russia and much of Central Asia. It dominated Turkey, Eastern and Central Europe, and finally ended at the Atlantic Sea in Spain, France, and, of course, Britain. This wasn't dry tundra, but a lush grassland. In modern-day tundras that we imagine in Siberia, where you often see reindeer during the winter, the permafrost is the ground. Every inch of the soil is frozen. However, in places like modern-day Yukon in Canada, the permafrost starts six to eight inches below the surface of the soil. This prevents trees from growing, but allows lush grasslands to form. Something similar is papping in Paleolithic Somerset. These are complicated, rich, biodiverse environments with thousands of species. From the mammoth steppes, we have evidence of grasses, of course, but also flowers like buttercups, whole fields of energy-rich herbs. There were also slightly larger plants like low-growing willows, dwarf birch, and the occasional larch tree. Nor should we think of Britain in this period as an unbroken plain of meadow or grassland. The hills that we have today already existed. Maybe they looked over plains where now they look over ocean, but they were still as high or higher than we see today. Nor was the grassland unending. Microclimates have always existed, and in those areas, different environments formed, providing variety of life for the humans and different regions for the mammoths to exist. In Essex, there were woodlands, in Worcestershire, steppe, and in the far north, in Leicestershire, an environment similar to that of the modern-day Arctic. This meant that, with a bit of ingenuity and adaptability, there was a lot of opportunity about. It just so happened that the humans strolling through Europe at that time were, like all humans, ingenious and adaptable. Humans had, within relatively easy reach, a variety of environments and thus a variety of resources to exploit, including different animals available for scavenging, hunting or trapping. As discussed last time, we can't discount regular fishing either. By this point, humans didn't just use animals for food. We have evidence they created shallow ditches, then used mammoth tusks to form frames, and then used hides to top those frames, creating subterranean shelters for them, which potentially acted as semi-permanent summer homes. We also see them shaping bones and ivories to make a wide variety of tools, such as awls, needles, spear throwers, and flint-working tools to help create the fine stone tools we see in this period. If 500,000 years ago before this period, Homo hylobogensis was already the apex predator, Homo sapiens completely ruled this land. They had a wide variety of food sources and, if they were able to survive through childhood, the prospect of a relatively long and varied life. All that said, they had to constantly battle against changing climates and unpredictable weather, meaning that domination was a fragile one. When humans moved into less established landscapes, disaster could strike, leaving them on the edge of survival and being forced to turn their adaptability to darker purposes. Also, mammoth steppe is a misleading term. It suggests that mammoths were the main source of food for humans. There's a reason that in the cover photo for this podcast Patreon and Facebook page, there's a mammoth looking on bemusedly at a skeleton chasing deer. 
Mammoths are big, strong, and deadly. I don't buy the image of a regular mammoth hunt. Would you take on an elephant with nothing but a spear? Instead, much of humanity's diet at this time would have come from herbaceous leaves, nuts, and berries, which were abundant. Humans would also have tended towards hunting smaller animals, like horse, bison, and reindeer. If they had the opportunity to hunt mammoth, which, anyway, were beginning to decline during this period, it would have been in extraordinary areas where the mammoth could be cornered or convinced to run off a cliff. Instead, megafauna like cave bears, woolly rhinos, and woolly mammoths were more often scavenged, potentially for meat, but also for their bones, horns, and ivory. The people of Goth's cave were taking a risk. The world they found themselves in was a rich but capricious place. When the times were good, society reached a degree of wealth as well as cultural and artistic complexity that had never before been achieved. In Britain though, on the front lines of a war between the glaciers and a warming world, it didn't take much for humans to be caught in an unforgiving landscape which forced difficult choices to be made. We didn't know that Goff's cave had been visited by any humans until 1903. In fact, the site wasn't called Goff's cave until Mr. Goff, in a fit of Edwardian overconfidence, decided to turn the cave into a tourist attraction. He thought that people who were visiting Cheddar Gorge for its natural beauty would be interested in the natural caves that honeycomb the limestone cliffs. Before he could open the cave up to the paying public, he had to contend with the water. The caves of Cheddar Gorge were formed when slightly acidic rainwater dissolved the rock and washed it away. In other words, Goff's cave floods. Not very often, nor very quickly, but too often and too quickly for the sensibilities of Grand Edwardian ladies. We'll talk more about Mr. Goff next time. He was in the same vein as William Buckland, and his big discovery was Cheddar Man. That skeleton is 7,000 years younger than the people we're talking about today. In one of the cave's chambers, more of a pit really, with the remains of between five and seven individuals. They range from the skeletons of young adults down to a skull of a three-year-old child. The bones had been butchered. There were cut marks on the edges of the skeleton which matched the bones of the reindeer also found in the pit. Like the red deer bones, the skeletons had been broken open to access the marrow. The skulls had their jaws removed and sometimes the cranium, the top of the skull, was carved and shaped into a bowl. Grizzly stuff indeed. As you might have noticed in previous episodes, I like to cast a wide net and discuss lots of different elements of living in the past. Not today though. Instead I'm going to use all of this episode to ask why do humans sometimes do something as reprehensible as eating each other? We'll then use that discussion to ask why were these men, women and children eaten and left in a dark, damp cave? Every human agrees that to eat another human is an extreme act. Where they disagree on is where and when that act is too extreme to countenance. The vast majority of societies, including our own, doesn't even engage with the question. Eating another human is always wrong, always too extreme. The mere suggestion of cannibalism is enough to ostracize a person or a group. 
For example, the Romans of the 2nd and 3rd century misunderstood Christian communion. They thought the body and blood of Christ, represented by the bread and wine, was a highly ritualized form of cannibalism. This disgusted many Romans and was one of the principal reasons behind the regular persecutions of Christians before Emperor Constantine. That's almost understandable, but let's break it down. Humans in a Western civilization would willingly crucify, sometimes burn alive somebody because they thought they pretended to be a cannibal, even though the victim was not a cannibal and never thought of themselves as a cannibal. What this shows us is that people will do morally repugnant acts to prevent or punish even the suggestion of cannibalism. Yet in the great experiment of humankind, most is never all. There are four occasions when cannibalism happens. None of them involve eating people as part of a healthy, balanced diet. Humans are a terrible source of food. We're scrawny for our size and regular cannibalism tends to cause some really nasty health conditions. Generally, the genetically closer an animal is to you, the less good they are for eating. That's part of the reason why you have to be much more careful cooking pork than you do beef. So then, when do some humans diverge from the norm and accept that it is permissible, even good, to eat people? The first exception is called survival cannibalism. I've started with this one because, spoiler alert, it's what I believe is happening at Goff's Cave. It's also the one form of cannibalism that has ever been accepted by a Western civilization. Very simply, survival cannibalism is when humans eat each other as a last resort because they're desperate. In the UK, up until 1884, it wasn't illegal for castaways to take lots as to who would be killed and eaten by the rest of the crews. However, in 1883, a small yacht was sailing from England to its new home in Australia. It sunk in a storm, and its four-man crew were cast adrift on a leaking lifeboat with nothing to survive on but their wits and two tins of turnips. After two weeks, they were over 1,000 kilometres from the nearest land, and had failed to catch any fish or rainwater. The youngest member of the crew, the 17-year-old Richard Parker, was near to death. Before he died, the rest of the crew killed and ate him. Despite the near certainty of death facing all crew members, they were charged with murder. This case changed law so that necessity could not be used to justify murder. But this judgment was passed in the face of a strong public opinion in favour of the castaways. It was only the MPs and lawyers who wanted to stop castaways eating each other. 140 years ago, when my grandmother's parents were alive, people thought it was right that people in extreme situations should be forgiven for taking extreme actions. The second form of cannibalism, a step further into the strange for Western people, is ritual cannibalism. This is very common in many tribal communities. It isn't because they're more barbaric, but because of the law of chance. Tribal hunter-gathering communities are one of the oldest and most common forms of human society, and they tend towards relative isolation. Thus, we have a large number of isolated experiments in building societies taking place. It isn't surprising that some of them are very highly regulated, like early Jewish tribes. Some are very violent, like many of those in Papua New Guinea. And some engaged in ritual cannibalism. What then is ritual cannibalism? Every culture has a complex understanding of the world. 
This is something that is easy to forget in the modern world, where most civilizations are variations on a theme set by European countries in the 18th and 19th century. What seems blindingly obvious to us is nothing more than the result of debates between people like Kant and Hegel, Darwin and Einstein, Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill. Thinking by people like this has created a world in which, of course, it makes sense that everyone is equal before the law. Of course, people should have a say in how they should be ruled. And of course, the government should not be involved in people's beliefs. For people who are not beneficiaries of the Enlightenment, none of this is obvious or even optional. They instead had their own unique understanding and belief system as to why the world is the way it is, what it means to be a good human, and what is the correct structure of society. Often the belief system of these tribal societies is centred on the vital force of natural objects, streams, trees, rocks, and, of course, people. This belief that people are in some way supernatural results in many different beliefs. For example, it may mean that the people believe their community is watched over by the ancestors, the dead who live on a different plane to the living, but support and help their descendants. Other times it might be a belief that when people die they return to the earth and their natural vitality returns to the earth. It's a logical step then, that if the person was particularly strong, wise or wealthy, it perhaps may be desirable to capture some of that vitality. In some communities, certain parts of the human body, maybe some muscle or a piece of brain or heart, are cooked as part of the funerary rites. This is then shared as very small scraps amongst the community. Apart from this very limited ritualized form of cannibalism, it is usually the case that cannibalism is seen as something horrific and beyond the pale in these societies. The third form of cannibalism is what I call aggressive cannibalism. It's very close to ritual cannibalism. However, it's so bizarre and so dark that we should discuss it separately. This is the form of cannibalism that sent explorers like Captain Cook into a feverish state of agitation. You see, Sometimes, ritual cannibalism can take a dark turn. That belief that people have a vital spirit can lead to some disturbing conclusions. Instead of taking a tiny morsel as part of a respectful funerary ritual, you might decide that if by eating someone you capture a part of their power, it's worthwhile to attack someone, kill them, and then eat them to capture that power. Many tribes practice cannibalism as a violent action. Something which is done because it is awful. The horribleness is desirable. When they meet people outside their tribes, they instinctively see them as other, and they see the other as dangerous. Therefore, they kill and eat the other, and this captures that otherness, brings it under the control of the tribe, and brings power to the tribe. In the same way, bringing in sexual partners from outside the tribe strengthens the gene pool. These are the cannibals that Hollywood likes to imagine. Hollywood also imagines another form of cannibal, the criminal cannibal. Think Hannibal Lecter or Issei Sagawa. These are people, usually men, who for psychological or sexual reasons are compelled to kill and eat other humans. It's an extreme form of mental illness. Needless to say, this is a vanishingly rare form of cannibalism. Its source is in the illness of an individual, not in societal structures or extreme situations. Cannibalism can be situational, cultural, or personal. And every form is always an extreme action. That is why it happens. It's a peculiar human behaviour. Some creatures are habitually cannibalistic, but humans aren't. Therefore, when there is a suggestion of cannibalism in the archaeological record, 
We have to take it seriously. Look deep into the black eyes of the human soul and understand why people would do such a thing. Then it is a case of asking, what does the evidence tell us is the most likely reason we are seeing probable cannibalism in Ice Age Britain? We can then use that as a window into life 14,700 years ago. All of that's coming up next. get back to the archaeology please to recap the evidence we are looking at are the remains of between five and seven people their ages range from three to thirty ish both males and females represented on the remains there are scratches caused by human tools which are consistent with butchery marks indeed they are exactly the same as the butchered remains of horses and red deer found with the human bones these butchery marks are horizontal scratches near the ends of the bones, where the muscles attach themselves. Often these bones have been smashed also to access the marrow. There are a few skulls, and these have been shaped into cups. Evidence suggests that before these were turned into cups, every edible scrap had been removed, including the brains and tongues. All of these bones are in a chamber of Goff's cave, which is closer to a pit. It is deeper and steeper than the rest of the cave. If it wasn't for the human bones, it would be considered a rubbish pit filled with the remains of Paleolithic meals. In another chamber of Goff's cave, dating to a little later than the human remains, is a piece of cave art. It's a carving in the shape of a mammoth. With our new understanding of why humans eat each other and the evidence from Goff's cave, Let's follow a process of elimination to identify the most likely causes of the remains. I'll be honest, my conclusion is different to that of Professor Bellow, who has done the most research into these bones. So you might want to look into this yourself and make your own mind up. One thing Professor Bellow and I agree on is that this is not evidence of criminal or sexual cannibalism. Instances of this form of cannibalism are extremely rare. And most people who conduct this type of cannibalism prey on strangers. In small, tight-knit communities, extreme crimes like murder and rape are very rare. Furthermore, the evidence speaks to some form of guilt. The butchery marks are deep, far deeper than necessary to separate the muscle from the bone. There's also the skull cups. These aren't an uncommon feature of late Paleolithic funerary practices. They exist throughout Europe, even when cannibalism isn't present. The other option is the exciting kind, the stuff of Johnny Depp movies. Aggressive cannibalism. Again, I'm not convinced. As we discussed, aggressive cannibalism is a cultural phenomenon. Quite simply, there isn't enough evidence of other instances of cannibalism to convince me that this is a cultural phenomenon. This is the only certain evidence of cannibalism in Britain. And there is only occasional evidence of cannibalism in wider Europe, and rarely is it as obvious as it is at Goff's cave. For a period that stretches 20 to 25,000 years, this is a paltry and patchy record. We're not seeing cannibalism happening at the same level we're seeing big game hunting, flint tool creation, cave art, or figurines. Furthermore, when we have aggressive cannibalism in more recent human societies, eating a human is a notable experience. 
They don't eat humans like their usual food. There is a degree of ritualization around the meal. And that's because of why humans eat other humans. If it isn't for some sick reason or due to absolute necessity, it's due to religious or spiritual reasons. People are trying to capture some of the power of other humans. Therefore, the fact we find human bones in and amongst the remains of other meals, thrown away like trash, suggests to me that this isn't aggressive. For similar reasons, I disagree with Professor Bellow. I don't believe that the humans of Goth's cave are engaging in ritual cannibalism. Archaeologists like ritual. It's a bit of a standing joke that ritual is archaeological code for we don't know. The idea that ancient people were mysterious and engaged in weird, hard-to-understand rituals is another pervasive idea in archaeology. Especially when it comes to talking to people who don't know about archaeology, the mystery and the magic is ramped up. You might have guessed that I don't like that approach. My experience tells me that ancient people were just that. People. It's much more interesting to create a complex, gritty picture of the ancient world than one in which the people were impossibly wise and mysterious. For this reason, I always try and question explanations of past behaviour as ritual. Now, often, that means I end up agreeing with the experts. For example, with the Red Lady of Paviland, that does seem to be the result of ritualistic action. However, at Goff's cave, the only evidence of ritual activity are the skull cups. Now, skull cups are relatively common in the European Paleolithic. The skull, the source of our sight, our smell, taste and speech, was an important object to many Paleolithic people. They would take the cranium and carve it until it was relatively even and smooth around the edge. This isn't as rare a phenomenon in history as it seems. The Romans were particularly taken with the Scythians, who would drink wine out of the skulls of their enemies. In the Paleolithic, skulls seem to have been treated with a bit more respect than the Scythians treated their skulls. Instead, they seem to be part of a religious motif centred around a form of ancestor worship. This is an addition to the shamanic beliefs that established themselves 10,000 years ago before our episode today. We see a religion developing, adding tenets to its faith. From a purely shamanic cave and magic mushroom religion, we've added a human element, specifically in the veneration of the deceased members of a community. Skull cups are a representation of this, and are the strongest evidence that cannibalism at Goff's cave was a religious or ritualistic act. However, less than half of the victims have had their skulls turned into cups, suggesting that most of the victims weren't subject to ritual cannibalism. Also, the way the bones have been deposited, like rubbish amongst the animal bones, doesn't speak of care or reverence. There is also the cave art, the mammoth on the wall, which might suggest Goff's cave was a religious site. I'm not certain though. As amazing as the mammoth is, it's only one painting and it's in a different part of the cave to the victims. Also, it probably dates from a slightly later period of Goth's cave use. I get why Professor Bellow thinks this is probably ritual cannibalism. She isn't the only person on that side of the debate. When I look at the evidence though, there's only one solution that explains every part of the evidence. Survival cannibalism. My principal evidence for this is because the site is quite unique. We don't see sites like this all across Europe. And that suggests to me that this is something different, not cultural expression. The second pillar of my argument is that, rather than seeing the skull cups or deep carving on the bones as evidence of ritual activity, I instead see an expression of guilt and shame. 
If the skull cups had been religious in nature, I'd expect to see every skeleton to have a skull cup. That isn't the case. Instead, I think that cannibalism happened more than once in similar situations. Sometimes the cannibals created skull cups as an attempt at providing some sort of burial to assuage their guilt. In a similar way, I think they made the butchery cuts extra deep because they wanted it to be obvious what they had done. Despite this, they were still ashamed and hid the bones from sight by throwing them away into a pit that used to throw the remains of other, happier meals. Furthermore, unlike the animal bones, the human bones had been scraped clean. This includes removing the tongues and scraping the brains from within the skulls. That is suggestive both of desperation, but also respect. They wanted to make sure they got every scrap of nutrition from the bodies. Yes, because they were on the edge of starvation, but also because they wanted to make sure that they repaid the sacrifice of their compatriots by not wasting anything. Finally, consider the world these people found themselves in. Britain was at the very edge of the habitable zone. It was a brutal place to try and survive, even at the best of times. However, during this period, the climate was shifting constantly. At its warmest, it was probably unsuitable for mammoth and bison. Within a few years, though, the temperature could have plummeted and the glaciers would return with a vengeance. Food supplies were being disrupted constantly. It is more likely that these people were transient, scraping an existence rather than establishing themselves. The image I have is of brave, tough individuals living in small groups, 10, 15 people at most. They didn't know it, but they were one of the most northerly human communities in existence. They hunted big game, horses, deer, sometimes even mammoths. To add to that meat, they'd eat herbs and plants that grew in the same grasses their prey grazed upon. However, sometimes, very rarely, perhaps once in a lifetime, the food would disappear. A longer summer might pull the mammoth herds further north, or a brutal winter meant no horse foals had survived. Food disappeared with no explanation. They searched, moving constantly, wasting calories. They ate what plants they could, but it wasn't enough. Not when winter arrived. They would sit in a well-known cave, a source of refuge from either the extreme heat of summer or the bitter cold of winter. In that cave, they got skinnier. They fell ill. The healthier people, watching their brothers, sisters, sons and daughters dying in front of them, got ever more desperate. In their desperation, they killed those on the very verge of death, no matter how young they were. They ate everything. Not just the arms and legs, but the brains, tongues and organs too. Physically, they survived, but survived consumed by guilt. They marked the bones in their grief. Sometimes they tried to perform some religious burial practices on the skulls, asking forgiveness of the ancestors. It didn't wash away the guilt. In their shame, they threw the bones and skulls into a pit and left. Desperate now, not for food, but to get away from the place of their shame.
extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The burden of proof for things such as mass murder, sacrifice, cannibalism has to be higher because it is such an extreme claim. If we weren't cautious when discussing cannibalism and other violent extreme behaviours, it would become easy to litter history with examples of extreme actions and create a narrative of humans being truly awful, always. Our personal experience tells us that, whilst not wholly incorrect, humans are a lot more complicated than the brutal beasts this reading of history might suggest. Nor should we judge past people too harshly or see them as mere animals. They were human, as human as you or me. They made clothes, they lived and loved. They also created art and tried to leave something of themselves, if not to posterity, then to other humans. I guess what I'm saying is, please don't judge these people too harshly. Researching this episode didn't fill me with horror at what these people had done. I didn't go to bed filled with disgust at the depravity of man. Instead, I felt pity. These were people caught in a brutal time. They didn't understand why their world was changing or why their food wasn't where it had been previously. Connected as they were to nature, the dramatic changes that were occurring during this time, sometimes in less than a year or two, would have been traumatising and horrific. There was no time to bed down and develop the close links to the environment that is an essential part of any hunter-gatherer lifestyle. I imagined them being constantly pushed to the edge, their nerves fraying. Life was difficult, too difficult. I see them slumping, exhausted and desperate. Migration patterns shifted as the weather changed, catching people out. Often there was no food. In the corners of huts and caves, the ill would lay, dying. Their friends and families were desperate. Desperate like the castaway crews of the 19th century. On rare occasions, they were pushed to do something horrific just to survive. They knew it was awful. In their hatred of themselves, they carved the butchery marks deeply to display their shame. They tried to commune with the dead, to seek absolution by turning the skulls into cups. When that failed... They threw the evidence of their shame into a deep chamber or an oft-flooded cave. There it lay, forgotten amongst the bones and muck, until a man on the makes or a chance to make a quick book. This is why archaeology is such an amazing and important subject. We don't have to wonder or ask, what if? Instead, we have evidence of the best and worst of humanity. We can ask why. We can plumb the depths of human experience and find some answers. Today we've asked what happens when you push people to an extreme. The response is not a pleasant one. But the next episode is more pleasant. We go beyond the ice and into the forests of Mesolithic Britain. In the shade of the trees, we find a young man in love. I hope you can join me. I'm Andy Earnshaw. This is Old Bones. See you soon.